Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash MilkStreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MilkStreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Yana Gilbueno was born in the Philippines, a country of over 7,000 islands and a huge number of local cuisines. Yana has traveled through all 50 states here in America doing pop-up Filipino dinners served in the Kamayan style. 
which means the guests eat with their hands. We asked Yana to Milk Street to talk about her new book, No Forks Given. There would be like fish vendors, and then the restaurants at the beach would just grill it in front of you. And then instead of serving you plates and utensils, they would lay out the banana leaves and put the rice there and just put the fish and you just go at it. Before we hear from Gilbuena, I chat with reporter Shayna Sheely about Thingyen, a Myanmar water feast, also known as the Burmese New Year. Taking place in Yangon, it is described as Myanmar's biggest annual collective water fight. Shayna, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, tell me a little bit about this water festival. I've never heard of it before. Uh, what is it all about? Uh, what, what, what's the concept? Yeah, so water festival, or in Myanmar, it's called Thinjin. Um, it happens all over East and Southeast Asia, and it varies in tradition and intensity. It's a Buddhist religious festival to welcome the new year. And in Myanmar, it was traditionally celebrated by sprinkling water on one another as part of a cleansing ritual. But these days, it ends up being, you know, people are dowsing strangers and passerbys with pails and buckets of water. People are dancing, spraying water hoses, um, and then it lasts for about five days. From what little I know about Myanmar, it's, uh, you know, it's not a freewheeling, easygoing place. This sounds like spring break, you know, in Florida, in terms of people going out having a good time. I think people have fun all around the year in Myanmar, but this is, you know, it's a time when people break the rules a little bit. Like, having respect for the elderly is really important in Myanmar, I was told. And during Thinjin, you can pour water on old people. So people bend the rules a little bit. It's also a time when I was there, people had um, amazing hair colors, like blue hair, purple hair, green and pink hair. I think in a lot of countries, you know, there's Carnival, there's Mardi Gras. Right. It's, it's sort of like that. So here's a woman I met named Omar Zin talking about her childhood memories of throwing water on thin gin and then reviving herself with the foods made especially for the festival. When we are young, we try to throw water, like, you know, the whole day. And then we are very hungry, so we fill up your body, like, fill up your stomachs, and then we can uh, play it again, like, for the whole day. So it is, like, uh, quite memorable when I was young. So the idea of water is to cleanse one from the prior year, right? I mean, this is sort of a, it's a new year, it's a new beginning. This is part of, as you said, sort of a classic religious ceremony that, that was, has mm-hmm. been celebrated for centuries. Right. The public face of Thinjin looks like a giant water party, but actually it's a really holy time. And a lot of people go into meditation in monasteries. People will go into old age homes and help out the elderly. People will hand out food in the streets. So yes, it's like this fun, wild water festival, and it's also this very holy time. So what about the food? Is, is, is there street food? How does food play a role in all of this? So monlonye ba is a traditional snack for Thinjin, and especially on the third day, you can find big platters on the street. Um, people just sort of hand them out for free. Here's a local journalist I met on Ningso. Uh, people wandering in the, in the city, if they get tired, they can stop by at any place where people are playing water and they can ask for this sticky rice ball and uh, everyone can enjoy it. Uh, and also this is, this is just a small amount of money so that people can easily share it with people or friends, you know. Hmm. So yeah, they're sort of like these dumplings. They're made out of a dough that's made from glutinous rice flour and water. Um, and then they're stuffed with jaggery, and they're like the pieces of jaggery are hard. And then you boil the dumpling, and the jaggery gets all melty and gooey in the middle. So the first time I had them, I was actually on a bus. And there was this little rest station, and I got out to go buy a bottle of water. And there were two women at the rest station, and one of them just handed me on a spoon this rice ball. And it was delicious. I ate two of them. And later I learned that I actually got lucky because I could have eaten one with a green chili inside of it. Because they're sort of like a fun game that you play with friends. Most are stuffed with jaggery. Some are stuffed with chili. So eating them is a total gamble. Here's Ang Neng So again. Yeah, I mean, I think almost everyone here has the same experience. Like we thought it's sweet. And then we put it in our mouth and we immediately... Uh, taste the spiciness from the chili we ate, then uh, it's really funny. 
towards the end of Thinjin, I was in Yangon, and um, one of my interpreters invited me over for lunch. And I got there, and it was a bunch of young journalists, local journalists in Myanmar, who I have to say are the most incredible and courageous people that I've met in my life. The stakes are really high for them reporting in Myanmar right now. And first we made Mon Ba. So we sat on the ground and we rolled jaggery and chilies into rice flour dough. And then we went back and we boiled the rice balls. Now some are floating. Mm-hmm. Does that mean they're ready? Yes, and now you can eat. Uh, you can eat. I think it's too hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little hot. I ate three of them because they're just so good. I just like couldn't stop eating them. And then I put one into my mouth and it was a green chili. And I really wish we were recording at that point because everyone was like, oh my God, get her water, get her water. And so it was fun. I got the full treatment. So what's the most memorable moment there, a thing that just really stuck with you the most? I think the most special part of my trip was the fact that, you know, I'm here speaking with you about food. I did not go to Myanmar to report on food. I went to Myanmar to do completely unrelated stories and along the way was invited into people's houses everywhere I went to eat, to come into their kitchens and being offered food, sharing meals with people um, was an incredible experience and it was really special. Shana, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. That was Shana Shealy reporting from Myanmar. This piece was supported in part by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. You can subscribe and listen to Milk Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Just subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded right to your phone. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will take some of your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? Chris, I'm great, and I'm ready to go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Carolyn from Warwick, Rhode Island. How are you? I'm great, thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you. Well, you know, we're very exciting people, right, Sarah? Oh, we're we're, we're just a party right here. (laughs) Okay. Well, I am a baker, and I love it. It seems to have taken over my life since I've semi-retired here. Fun. And um, I love to bake cakes and pastries, and a lot of them are from when my mom made things. And a lot of times I don't have all the ingredients, so I substitute because I'm one of those people that don't run to the store for everything. And one of the things I've gotten stumped on is cake flour. My grandchild, one of them, only likes yellow cakes, doesn't like chocolate. And I'm great at chocolate, but yellow cakes, I cannot make a nice, fluffy yellow cake. And the recipe called for cake flour, so I looked up how to do it, and it said to take away two tablespoons of flour from your flour one cup. And add cornstarch? Add cornstarch and sift it six times. And then measure the flour, which I did. And dance in concentric circles for five minutes, singing some (laughs) strange song? Yeah. This this sounds like, yeah, this is voodoo. Now, there are a bunch of problems. Cake flour is always bleached, and all-purpose flour, unless you specifically buy bleached, is not, which is a big difference. The protein content of all purpose is 10 to 11% usually, and cake flour is going to be in the 8 to 9% range, which means it's going to absorb liquid differently and bake up differently. So And be more tender. And, and be, be more, more tender. Because gluten is what gives right. structure to things, and gluten plus liquid, when you work it, is what makes something like for bread, you know, give you that structure that you want, but you don't want that in a cookie or a cake. You and, want it to be tender. And lower protein ends up meaning lower gluten. Right. So it's a pretty hard substitution. Um, the only other thing you could do is use all-purpose flour, but if you're a good enough baker, you could do reverse creaming, uh-huh. which means you take softened butter and mix that with the flour as the first step in the recipe, and that coats the flour, and you'll get less gluten development. But you'd have to know a little bit about baking to make that Right, so it's switch. better just to go to the store and buy a box of cake flour. It would be a lot easier to go to the store and buy a box of bleached cake flour, which will probably last you a long time, keep it on the shelf. If I didn't 
use the cake flour and just used white flour, the texture of the cake would be different then. It be would heavier. be heavier? Yes. Be heavier, and you might have to adjust the liquid amount. Because yeah, the, I do want to make a fluffy yellow cake for him. So well, cake have, flour will definitely help. Yeah, I would give it a whirl. And, you know, since you're a baker now, I mean, you're focusing on it, why not? And then see if you, if you don't see a difference, then go back to all-purpose flour. But I think you will. All right, we'll do that. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Thanks, my pleasure. Carolyn. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Yes, this is Elizabeth Ottinger in Middlebury, Vermont. Well, hello. How can we help you? Yes, I have a question about making preserved lemons. I followed Ottolenghi's recipe, and it looks absolutely delicious. I used organic lemons, and I scrubbed them and followed everything. And after a month, I opened them, and they tasted really bitter. And I'm guessing the problem is too much pith, but I can't find a thin-skinned lemons or Meyer lemons here, and I would appreciate any advice you have to offer. We did a tasting in Mill Street last week of jarred preserved lemons. I didn't like those either. I thought they were bitter, and I've tasted them in Morocco, and and they're quite nice. So my suggestion would be to try to find Meyer lemon because they have very thin skins, but I think the typical supermarket lemon with thick skin is pretty much a non-starter. And you also have to get all the, if they're not organic or natural, it's probably not going to work very well either. So that's yeah. another problem. They're coated with wax or some other... Oh, you can scrub them. Scrub them, but I... I did that, yeah. But anyway, I think thick skin is just not going to work. It's a big problem. But let me just throw something out. There's a very quick method where you thin slice the lemons crosswise and then salt them and leave hmm. them for 24 to 36 hours at room oh, temperature. I know this. And, you know, it's not the same. It's not the same depth of flavor, but they're pretty darn good. So I really recommend hmm. trying that. Slice them thinly. Salt them with kosher salt on both sides. Cover them just with plastic wrap and leave them at room temperature 24 to 36. Then rinse them off and um, pat them dry and you're good to go. Hmm. Wonderful. I yeah. just learned something. Oh, my God. I, I taught a, Chris I, I knew there something. was a reason I'm doing this show. Wowie zowie. It's for my own education. Okay. Well, okay. Anyway. What a pleasure to speak to both of you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Elizabeth. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking question or failure, just give us a ring any time. That number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, uh, this is Paul Reynolds from Connecticut. What is your question today? I love gooey oatmeal raisin cookies and recently developed a nut allergy. And the doctor says I have a little bit of elevated sugar. So I had to make some adjustments. And I'm curious about some advice maybe for oatmeal cookies without sugar or something in that regard. Let me ask, what kind of fruits can you have, fresh fruit? I can have apples, raisins. Um, I can't have anything with a pit, like a peach or a nectarine, any of that. How about bananas? I can have a banana a day. Are you going to put a banana in his oatmeal cookie? Yes, a (laughs) a mashed banana or some unsweetened applesauce. You know, so using the fruit as the sweetener. But uh, that's just a thought. Chris, you clearly don't approve. He's rolling his eyes. No, please don't. Please don't <laughs> mash a banana and put it in your own milk cookie. I think it would be yummy. Well, no, the problem is you can't use an artificial sweetener for a cookie because the sugar has chemical properties which give structure to the cookie and also hold on to moisture. So there is no substitute for sugar in a cookie. There would be in a berry cobbler where you don't have to worry about structure. But in a cookie, you do... So without using sugar, you're just not going to get what you want, which is a crispy edge and a, a very gooey or moist center. You could try the mashed banana, but I don't – it depends what your tolerance for <laughs> soft cookies. I, I prefer Culinary pain is – yeah, yeah I, that's a problem. When a recipe calls for sugar in baking, where structure is an issue, there's really no substitute for it, I'm afraid. You just have to go make something else. It's like honey. You can't substitute honey for sugar and baking when it's a structure issue. Well, you know, you like something a lot, and uh, maybe you try and find some way to have it work. Um, What was the unsweetened applesauce? I wrote that down. Yeah, or mashed mashed ripe banana, or a little bit of each. Okay. I don't know the proportions, which is, of course, what you absolutely need. Well, Sarah's desperate for the mashed banana thing to work, so... (laughs) <laughs> if it does work, please let us know because she'll never let me forget it. Yeah, you know, I got to be right every so often. 
anyways, this was very informative. So the unsweetened applesauce, mashed ripe banana or a combination of the two, and look up soggy banana cookie there. Yeah, definitely look up soggy banana <laughs> cookie. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah's about to kill me, so. Not over a cookie, please. Yeah. Not <laughs> okay. over a cookie. All right, okay. Paul. Best of luck. We really hope you find a good solution. Thank yes. you very much. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, okay. Take care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Yana Gilbuena, author of No Forks Given. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like, just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Yana Gilbuena was born in the Philippines, a country of over 7,000 islands and a huge number of local cuisines. From the rich and creamy dishes of the north to the sweeter cooking of the middle of the country to the spicy foods of the south. Yana has traveled through all 50 states doing pop-up Filipino dinners, served in the Kamayan style. Guests eat with their hands. We asked Yana to Milk Street to talk about her nomadic lifestyle, her new book, No Forks Given, and how to buy a pig's head here in the States for one of her recipes. Yana, how are you? I'm very good, Chris. How are you? So the Solo Project is a party or gathering. Yes. And you're doing this in all 50 states. So when did you get the idea? How many states have you been to? Uh, what's going on? Um, so I got the idea back in 2013. I kind of had like this epiphany after being laid off. And um, I was doing pop-ups in Brooklyn. And one of my mentors was like, oh, if you don't want to go the traditional route, there's 50 states in 50 weeks, so go figure it out. So I did the project back in 2014, and I finished going to all the 50 states in 2015. And since then, I've just continued traveling. It sounds better than a day job. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's talk about the Philippines. Um, uh, there are over 7,000 islands, so the idea of a Philippine cuisine is ridiculous, right? Because there's so many different kinds of cooking there. Oh, definitely. Like, each region has its own flavor. And so w- what are the top two or three regions in terms of cuisine? So there's three main regions, which is the Luzon, which is northern, and Visayas, which is the middle, and Mindanao, which is the southern. Luzon is, I would say, meat-heavy and also on the vinegary side, and... In the Visayas, there's a lot of sugar plantations, so the cooking tends to be on the sweeter side. And in the south, there's a lot of coconuts and influence of Islam, so they get a lot more spices and coconut milk-based stuff. So some ingredients or some dishes obviously have come from other places. It's not just the Philippines is such a complicated uh, area culturally. It's mm-hmm. that like noodles from China, for example. So what, what are some of the influences from other parts of Southeast Asia or Malaysia, for example? Um, one very big influence that I could think of is like um, fermentation that came from Japan. So they started bringing in jars of like fermented fish. And that's when we started doing jars of fermented fish also. Um, and th- th- This is to make a fish sauce or to, for what? Um, so there's fish sauce and also... Um, Bagoong, which is like shrimp paste, which is a staple in almost all the dishes in the Philippines. Malaysia, definitely like the spices we use. And Indonesia as well, especially in the south. And India for the curries that we have. (laughs) So it's interesting. So the north of Luzon doesn't use a lot of spice, but the south does. Yes, a lot more than other regions of the Philippines. Like they use... um, Mostly, like, influence of the Arabs, actually, because they brought with them Islam and their spices. <laughs> what do you got in the back? I have Islam and my spices. <laughs> um, so you have some other interesting—I I looked at your book, Interesting Ingredients. Uh, you use 7-Up or Sprite. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay, so you're going to have to defend that one. So you, you have a stir-fried shrimp with 7-Up or Sprite. How did that get into the sort of lexicon of common ingredients? I would say the influence of America. <laughs> we did it again. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I think because um, Sprite has that limey essence to it, and it, lime works so well with shrimp. And what we have, most of the time in the Philippines, we cook with what we have and what's ready. And so Sprite just kind of... Sprite was there. It yes. was ready. <laughs> why, why not? Well, I notice a lot of places in Asia, too, like MSG... Uh, yes. like, you know, Maggie cubes, is very common. And, and nobody feels bad about it. They think, yeah, we'll just add some MSG and it boosts flavor. Mm-hmm. Is, is MSG used in Filipino cooking too? When I was growing up, definitely. Yeah. We had a giant bottle of Ajinomoto. <laughs> the secret. Yeah, we call it Vetsin. Which mean, does that mean something? Or? It's It just means like MSG, but oh. Filipino. <laughs> um, some of the other ingredients, one of the recipes said, one pig's head, comma, halved. Um, or, or face meat. Um, so if I'm going into my butcher and say, could I have the face meat off a pig's head or a pig's head, I guess you could special order it. Is that hard? Was that something you actually used in any of your dishes in the 50 states? I did. Um, and I was fortunate enough to actually find butchers that were happy to, like, give me, like, the pig's head for next to nothing. Because hmm. most of the time they said it just 
goes to waste. And then there are markets, especially Asian markets, they would have the, we call it mascara, like the mask, just ready. So let's talk about some of the recipes. Uh, Bubuto, if I pronounce that right, chicken thighs and coconut milk. That looked uh, like one of those recipes that would translate to the American table very well. Definitely. And it's um, the Filipino version of tamales. Hmm. So um, instead of like using corn or um, the Chinese use rice, we used um, the sweet potatoes in that that part. So when you do these pop-ups, which dishes and foods seem to really catch on and people love and which is a little bit more of a stretch for the American audience? Well, I've tried to really push balut, which was a fertilized duck egg embryo. <laughs> that, that did, did not, not go over too That well. did not so go over So how well. is that prepared and served? So I'm glad that there's like still farmers out there that incubate these eggs. Um, so you can go to the market and buy them like either seven days or 10 days old. And then what you do is just boil them for 20 minutes and then you let it sit in the hot water for another 20 and then you just serve it hot with like a side of vinegar or salt. And dare I ask what it's like inside? It's like a chunky chicken soup. <laughs> and you love it. And I love it. Yes. Now, do you have to do you have to grow up eating that or is it something you can adapt to later in life? I definitely grew up eating it as a little girl and actually that was my treat hmm. growing up. So if I was a bad girl, I would not get balut. So I tried very hard every night. Because the, the vendors, the balut vendors, would come at night. They're, it's, really? Yeah. It's kind of like, um, I would say, like a pulutan. So it's like something that you would eat while you're drinking. And so my uncles hmm. have drinking sessions at night. Um, so let's go back to your childhood. That's really interesting. What else about that time is really unique for you? I think the whole concept of dining kamayan, especially for me, was like a Sunday treat. And that means with your hands? Yeah, uh, on banana leaves with your hands. Um, So my Sundays are spent at the beach, and then there would be, like, fish vendors that would just have fresh fish being peddled, and then the restaurants would just grill it in front of you. Mm. And then instead of serving you plates and utensils, they would lay out the banana leaves and put the rice there and just put the fish, and you just go at it. Now, are there rules? I know in in Senegal, the rule is you eat with your hands, but you have your your section of the pie or the plate towards you is what you can eat. You can't still steal the juicy bits of meat from someone else's portion. (laughs) I mean, do you have rules about how this works? Yes. um, So there's proper Kamayan etiquette where you um, serve yourself with your non-dominant hand, you eat with your dominant hand, and everything in the middle is considered communal. So for us, it's okay that if you find like a piece of meat over there, you just ask, that guy who's sitting over there to just pass it on to you with his non-dominant hand. What about street food? Oh, my God, street food. Definitely we have this thing called inasal, which means, like, something that's been grilled. So it's, like, chicken parts, different chicken parts. And my favorite was... Is this on skewers or...? They're all on skewers, kind of like a yakitori. Mm -hmm. That's where they would brush the anato oil over it. So they would have chicken skin, chicken um, coxcomb, uh... Pork's blood on skewers, that was another thing. We called it Betamax because huh. <laughs> it, it looked like a little Betamax. Well, they have that in uh, in Taipei. They have pig's blood cake, which is served almost like a popsicle on a skewer. Yes. Uh, and I tried it. Yeah. Did you love it? No. Um, <laughs> I, I, tr- I said I tried it. Um, it has a very unctuous texture and flavor. As yes. Let me put it like that. So what, what, what Filipino recipes have already made it into the American lexicon, and, and where is that going to go? Adobo has definitely made it there. Pancit is the other one, which is just like noodles, stir-fried noodles. And lumpia has made it. And now sisig is like their new favorite. And thank you to Anthony Bourdain for being the champion of what, sisig. What's sisig? So sisig is the the one with the pig's face. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, but... Lately, people have been using other parts of the pig to make sisig. And so so starting with whatever cut of pork you do, mm-hmm. how do you make it? I just cut it up. I boil it, and then I broil it, and then I cut it up into small pieces, and then I would fry it with soy sauce, lime, and Thai chilies, and then I would put an egg on it. 
and then just mix it all up. I'm going to write a cookbook called Put an Egg on It. Cause it yes, please. In, in so many cultures, <laughs> that's dinner. You just put an egg on it, right? I mean, it works. Um, in other places in the world, Vietnam, Japan, other places, they have a philosophy of cooking. That is, it's not just the physical act of cooking food. There's a way they think about cooking in the kitchen. They, they move in a certain way or they, they bring a certain mindset to cooking. In, in Filipino cooking, which I know is a broad term, is there, is there more than just the, the physical act of cooking? Does, does it have a, a broader cultural meaning in some way? For us, cooking is a way of bringing people together. So even in our kitchens, like the making of lumpia, you cannot make lumpia alone. You have to have like a little, I would say, production line. And then everyone in the family is involved in some way or another. And I think for us, I'd say that's our mentality every time we cook. We don't cook for just one. We cook for like a village. (laughs) But, you know, it's like whatever is left, we make things with our leftovers and it's fine. And I'm kind of jealous, actually, like with other cuisines in terms of like the Japanese way of cooking and frugally you mean very frugal like it's so different from the philippines uh you grew up it seems to me in a really fascinating part of the world and wonderful food and everyone is in the kitchen it's so different than at least what we've had here for a long time although it's changing what did you lose when you came here and what did you gain um for a while i thought i lost you know, my sense of being Filipino, you know, because um, moving here, like in Northern America at least, was like you have to assimilate really fast. And with people talking less of your language, you're kind of forced to like kind of shelf it on a side. But what I gained also, ironically enough, was that um, found sense of self, that it's okay to like embrace who you are and this is like a country that's made of immigrants, and it's great to have your own voice and have that representation. Yana, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Chris. That was Yana Gilbuena, author of No Forks Given, One Chef's Quest to Conquer America Through Kamayan. You know, I grew up in an age when every country had its own cuisine. Chinese food, Indian food, Mexican food, Italian food. Then later, we could choose between Southern and Northern Italian. And then we had regions, Tuscany, Venice, Emilia Romana. Today, we're starting to realize that a place like the Philippines has over 7,000 islands and probably dozens of cuisines. So someday, a cuisine may not reflect a nation. It may just be whatever we're cooking for dinner. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with editorial director J.M. Hirsch about his trip to Singapore and a light exotic shrimp dish he brought back. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? So you decided to walk to dinner in Singapore. It was, it was about a mile. Stupid idea, let me tell you. It was 100 degrees, 100% <laughs> humidity. But at the end of the day, when you finally sat down, you were rewarded. I was. Although I'll tell you, it was not without worry because... One of the things that surprised me about the food in Singapore was how heavy and sweet it is. And so here I am trudging through the heat and humidity, thinking I'm going into a kind of laborious dinner. I went to this restaurant, Candlenut, it's called, and it bills itself as the first Perenaken Michelin-starred restaurant. And Perenaken is a cuisine that is a blend of Chinese, Malaysian, and Indonesian foods, techniques. I was, again, expecting heavy Singaporean food, sat down to a crab curry. And this was the lightest, brightest curry I've ever had. It was rich with lemongrass and coconut milk and turmeric, and it had just a hint of heat. But it was rich with seafood, and it was almost airy. It was incredible. It blew me away. It was such a different take on curry than I've ever had. So this was a unique taste for you in Singapore, right? This sort of stood out as being Completely different than everything else I ate in Singapore. So you came back to Milk Street, willingly or not, and you came back, and and so what did we do with a crab curry from Singapore? Because I assume we're not using crab. Yeah, you know, we wanted to keep it affordable and accessible, and obviously shrimp is a lot more 
affordable and accessible than crab. That was our first choice. The curry sauce itself was actually pretty simple. We stayed relatively true to the original, you know, a lot of lemongrass, a lot of turmeric. They used galangal, which is a relative of ginger, so we used ginger. The flavor profile is pretty similar. And we did want to imbue it with a little bit more of the seafood flavor, and so we simmer the shrimp tails in that sauce and then strain them out just to kind of give it that kind of richness. Uh, the one major change that we had to make was the restaurant's name, actually. You know, candle nut. That's an actual ingredient that's used throughout Asia. It's a nut that is often pureed into sauces like this, and it thickens and it enriches those sauces. So you're calling for candle nuts? <laughs> you completely lost your mind? <laughs> no, no, you can't find too many candle nuts in these parts. And we did try a few alternatives. We tried cashews and peanuts, but they both kind of overwhelmed the other ingredients in the sauce. And we ended up using macadamias because they're widely available. They're very creamy when you cook and puree them. And they gave the sauce that kind of body and richness that we were looking for. So you went to Singapore. It was hot, it was humid, but you came back with a light, fresh curry, Singapore shrimp curry. Thank you. Thanks so much. And you can find the recipe at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. We'll be right back. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Milk Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take a few more calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, you ready for a uh, new batch of questions? Yes, Chris, I am very ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Matthew. How can we help you? I'm calling because I had recently come across a recipe for a three-layer cake using a hot milk cake batter, which I'd never heard of prior to this. And the recipe directions call you to make the cake in a six-inch cake pan that's three inches deep. And then once it's done cooling, you cut it into three layers and frost it. As the cake baked up, the sides rose up, but the middle, instead of doming, actually puckered inward, sort of funneled down so that the funnel actually went through the top and middle third and went all the way to the bottom layer so that you couldn't cut it into three layers because the top two layers were essentially donuts. So I cut it up and ate it. tasted great, but I'm not sure if I should just quit while I'm ahead, or if there's something I can do to actually make it work as a three-layer cake. Was this recipe told you to use a six-inch diameter pan, or was it normally cooked in a different pan? It's actually a recipe that's supposed to cook into two six-by-three-inch pans. Right. It makes two cakes. There you go. That's the problem. The problem is you have so much batter in a relatively small diameter pan 
that the center is not creating enough structure to hold up its height. So with two six-inch pans, you don't have that height problem, and the center is going to get cooked. The center is obviously not cooking through because you have so much batter. So I would just go back to either three cake pans or two cake pans for a two-layer cake. Are you baking this at 350? Or? You bake it at 350, yeah. Yeah, I would try 325 for a longer period of time to give it time to set. Okay. But changing diameters or sizes of baking pans is problematic. the road to perdition. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, you're going to end up in troubles. And the problem is it's just too much batter in the center that's not going to get cooked. You just did that just because you didn't have a second pan? Oh, no, no, no. No, I did it in two. Oh. I divided it in half, and I did it exactly as the recipe had called for. Well, here's another question. So okay. does this recipe start with beating eggs and sugar together? Yes. Till they're um, thick and lemon-colored and, you know, ribbon and et cetera? It started on the stovetop heating it together and baking it together and then putting it into a stand mixer for 10 minutes. And I did that. So, like, this is the beginning of, like, a genoise. And after the 10 minutes, was it thick and ribbony and light-colored? It seemed to be, as much as... I don't know if I could have gone for another five minutes if it would have looked... 10 minutes sounds like an awful long time. No. It was on medium to high the whole time. I would say three to five minutes is the typical time for that. Mm, I think it could take longer. Here's what's happening. The outside of the pan is heating up before the inside. So the batter on the outside is getting lift and creating structure because it's hotter than the inside. And the inside of the batter is not getting heated up enough by the time the outside is set. So it's it's sort of like cooking a roast at a very high temperature. The outside gets very hot before the inside comes up. So I would go to 300 or 325 and see if that solves your problem. Okay. The other thing I would consider doing is getting a 9-inch cake pan and just baking it, or two 8-inch pans. I use two 8-inch pans and do that. It'll mean there's less batter in each pan uh, in terms of height. The inside is more likely to get baked. I would reduce the temperature to 325 okay. and use two 8-inch pans, and you okay. can call me and tell me it didn't work. <laughs> but it, at least at least I came up with a possible solution. Yeah, yeah. I uh, mean, a 6-inch cake pan is awfully narrow. Yeah, it sounds to me like it's the diameter of the pan yeah, that's the issue that's the here. Problem. Yeah. And it just so, can't, the outside bakes too quickly. That, correct. Yeah. Lower oven temperature and a wider cake pans. And that's just all my problems? We well, hope. Well, um, that's the proposition here at Milk Street <laughs> that's, today. That's what the, that's the doctors right. are recommending. <laughs> I will let you know how the patient does. Please let us know. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. okay. You're welcome. Bye. 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 Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Scott Dickman from Columbus, Ohio. How are you? Hi, Scott. Doing well, doing well. How can we uh, help you? I have a 30-inch freestanding gas range with a double oven, and both ovens fluctuate really greatly during the baking cycle, upwards of approximately 100 degrees. So trying to understand, is it something with my oven? Is it something I could do to maybe add to prevent the fluctuation or just something to help with my baking because I have to babysit it a lot? How do you know it's fluctuating? I have a couple of instant read thermometers in each one. I have them pretty close to the window so I can see what the temperature is during the baking cycle. Aha. So I think, one. first of all, all ovens fluctuate a lot. But if you're not taking the temperature in the center of the middle rack, you said you left it closer to the window in the front, that might fluctuate more. In fact, the top left of an oven versus the bottom right even if the oven's fairly stable, can vary 40, 50 degrees. You'd want to take the temperature in the middle rack in the center. Are these convection ovens, by the way? The top one is a standard oven, and the bottom is a convection. But to be perfectly honest, the fluctuation is approximately 100 degrees. Jeez. So I'll wow. get it nice and hot. That's yeah. <laughs> that sounds like nice something's... Go back and test with the oven thermometer in the center and see okay. if you get the same fluctuation. If you do... You can call in the appliance wholesaler you bought it from or the gas company and get it calibrated. calibrated. It sounds like there's something wrong. 50 done. degrees is typical. 100 is way out of yeah, whack. Yeah, that's crazy. Let me ask the obvious question. When you bake a cake or something that's a little delicate, do you have a problem? Yeah, I tried popovers recently, and they came out like hockey pucks <laughs> just because I didn't babysit it as closely as I normally do. And at one point when I did go over... It was down in the 200s. Jeez. Down. What was the starting oven temperature? It was about 400. 
and I know that I have to at least set my dial to 450 to even get the oven to 400. It got up to 400, and then I kept the oven about 450, but then it dipped down to about, I think it was 280, 290. I was trying things like adding, I have a pizza steel. I added it to kind of help. I tried that. The temperature. I tried that too, really and I found that you use it as a heat sink to even out the temperatures. Yeah, I tried that with a baking stone. That actually caused problems for me. Mm-hmm. When you bake, the bottom element goes on, and when you have a baking steel or stone at the bottom, there's not good airflow coming up from the bottom mm-hmm. of the oven. So I, I actually found that to be problematic. Yeah, but I think the answer is call yes. the manufacturer and get somebody in to calibrate it. But, okay, it was either that or short of carting it out to the sidewalk and hoping someone would come in and pick it up. So, or, or you could use it as a flower or a sculptural display in your backyard. Yeah. <laughs> I, oh, I yeah. mean, that, yeah, that's way beyond the normal fluctuation. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Sorry, Scott. Have the pros come in. Okay. okay. Right. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank uh, all you. Right, Thanks, Scott. Yeah, take care. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Give us a call anytime at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855 855- Four two six nine eight four three, or send us an email at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, Jeff from Palmer, Texas. How are you? Doing great. How are you? Pretty good. How can we help you? Try to make fried rice. And okay. I know the trick of uh, using leftover rice that's been in the refrigerator so it dries out. Right. But the problem is that I've got five kids. So when I'm making it, I tend to crowd the pan. Even if I have two big skillets going, it just doesn't turn out the way it tastes at a restaurant. So what can I do without making, you know, individual servings for everybody? Is it a taste issue or a texture issue? Texture. How are you making it now? What are the steps? So either using leftover rice or I'll make rice real early in the day and lay it out to cool and put it in the refrigerator. Right. Put oil in the skillet, get it really hot, and put the rice in. But we're making so much rice that it's just hard to not crowd that pan. Do you add other ingredients, though, Jeff? I try to do the rice first by itself and then add the other ingredients once the rice is good. But the rice just you know, kind of steams in the pan instead of really getting that fried texture. How big are these skillets and what kind of stovetop do you have? Gas stovetop and the biggest skillets we've got. Uh, 12 inch? 12 inches, yeah. Well, you know... You can get flat bottom walks that are bowls with flat bottoms, and you can get a large mm-hmm. one. And you can get them made of iron as well as steel. You might get one that's a little heavier and heat it up for about 10 minutes over medium low to really get it hot. Probably have to do two batches. But that way, you'd have a bowl configuration. You can move the rice around very quickly. You'd have enough heat, hopefully, in the bottom of the pan to do the job. But a skillet's going to be a pretty tough thing to use with that amount of rice, and that's why the shape of the wok in this case would be very helpful. If you want to do it in the two skillets, do it in smaller batches, just lay it out on a sheet pan, you know, so it doesn't get soggy, and then throw it back in with your sautéed vegetables. Yeah, I was trying not to do too many batches because then you're in the kitchen forever. Right. That's true, too. If you do this a lot, I would try the wok because it really is perfectly designed for stir-fried rice. That's what okay. it's good for. I'll look yeah, so. Thanks for calling. Thank you Thanks, very much. Jeff. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. Most cooks have heard about adding extra flavor to pasta sauce or soup by adding a Parmesan rind. But we found we could add flavor directly to the pasta by adding cheese to the cooking water. Here's how it works. Add a one-ounce chunk of Pecorino Romano to the cooking water when you bring the water to a boil and leave it in while the pasta cooks to fully enrich the flavor of the pasta. Make sure to remove the cheese chunk before draining and saucing the pasta. You can find this recipe at MilkStreetRadio.com. Right now, it's time to check in with Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker and also a regular contributor to the show. Adam, how are you? I am well, Christopher. How are you? Uh, This week, I'm hungry, and that's why I'm talking to you. You You might sate my appetite on a philosophical level. Uh, then I'm afraid I will deeply disappoint you because the topic <laughs> that I have prepared for our conversation this month is not about good things to eat. It is instead about wonderful things to drink because I spent last week in the vineyards of California, not a place I often get to, thinking about the relationship between philosophy 
and wine. The occasion for my doing so is that I was spending the week with Randall Graham, the, the maestro of Bonnie Doon Vineyards. He's an extraordinary guy, famous for having been among the first to plant the great veritals of the Rhone Valley in California in place of what he refers to witheringly as chocolate and vanilla. By chocolate, I should add, he means Cabernet Sauvignon grapes, and by vanilla, he means Chardonnay. But now, Randall is searching for new philosophical dimensions. And one of the fascinating things that we got to talking about was the close relationship between philosophy and wine, and specifically the close relation between students of philosophy and wine. Randall Graham, it turns out, for instance, was a, a student of philosophy working on an honors thesis on Heidegger when he wandered into a wine store, his brow furrowed, unable to begin to fully comprehend the greatness of Heidegger, and instead started drinking wine. And the fascinating thing, and he pointed out to me that this was quite widespread, Paul Draper, he was the great winemaker of Ridge Vineyards, the great maker of uh, American Zinfandel. Paul Draper, too, was a philosophy student who fled philosophy, not out of a dissatisfaction with philosophy, but because he found in wine a material, a subject, a rich enough to spend your life philosophizing about. And I asked Randall why he thought there was this deep relationship between philosophy and wine, and he said something that I thought was quite beautiful and that I will hold in my heart forever, and that was that wine is a mystery that holds the promise of an explanation. Hmm. Isn't that nice? I like that. Of course, implicit in that formulation is that we will never get all the way to the explanation. More specifically, I realized that one of the things that wine brings forward to us is the essential philosophical question, and that is about the relationship of our subjective experience to the objective world. But haven't there been tastings that pretty much resolve this? You know, the, the PhDs in wine all sitting around, and they had glasses so you couldn't tell the color of the wine. And they said they were, they were drinking a white wine. It was actually red, and everyone thought it was white. And then the $100 bottle being mixed with the $10 bottle and nobody could tell the difference. I mean, have you ever seen two, two experts agree on any particular thing being tasted? I don't think so. <laughs> no, and that's exactly where us American empiricists, right, where we tend to end up. We say that the whole thing is a fiction that people have agreed on over, over hundreds of years. But there's a contrary point of view, which is, and it's the whole myth of terroir, uh, and that is that, yes, of course, these things exist in only in a network of associations, and they only exist because we read the bottle and we recognize that it's Chateau Reyes and not some cheap Grenache uh, grown in Florida, but that that network of associations is essential to everything that we experience. Randall's in a very interesting place right now because he's persuaded himself that the thing that we have obsessed about when we think about wine for all of these generations, which is the name of the grape, is secondary. It doesn't matter if we are planting what he calls chocolate or vanilla, uh, Cabernet or Chardonnay, or any one grape, that what really speaks in a bottle of wine, a great bottle of wine, is place, the legendary French notion of terroir, and that the mistake American planters and American winemakers have made is to focus so narrowly the on the varietal right. that they've lost the lesson of place, and that we've lost the ability, therefore, to make American wine that tastes, in the most literal sense, like America. And Randall Graham is selling off all of his properties, bought a beautiful new vineyard, and is going to plant grape seeds, simple seeds, and try and evolve an entirely new American varietal that will reflect the essence of California land. But there's one last point to this I think is so interesting, which is the average French person drinks six-star or eight-star bottles of wine. If you go to Paris or anywhere else in France, very few people are, are, are buying 40 $50 bottles of wine. They don't view wine as a philosophy. They view wine as a drink. It's social. It has to do with food, et cetera. Uh, and so in this country, we've turned wine into a philosophy. But is it, is it not true that in France it's less philosophical? I, I think you're essentially completely right, Chris. In France, you marry your favorite wine, the right. way you might marry your favorite partner. You drink them when they're in good years and in bad. You drink exactly. them in season and out of season. You have a familial relationship to wine much more than you have a 
pompous philosophical relationship to wine. I think that's true. And it's one of the striking things about living in France is that the presence of wine, daily presence, even the um, lunchtime presence of wine is much keener in France, but the cult of wine is much narrower. The whole notion of uh, treating wine as a cult object rather than as a common object uh, is much less pronounced than it is here. Yeah, I mean, just to, to, to summarize, maybe wine's a drink, not a philosophy. Could be, but that in itself said the old philosopher, is a a philosophy and a very American (laughs) philosophy. It's what we call American (laughs) pragmatism. Of course, of course. Thank you, Adam. Pleasure, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. Early in the show, I spoke to reporter Shana Shealy about Myanmar's annual water festival. So let's do a quiz. I'll name a country. You name the first thing that comes to mind. Britain, perhaps the Queen. Japan, maybe Mount Fuji, and France, maybe the Eiffel Tower. But when someone says Myanmar to me, the first thing I think of, well, probably a military uniform. And that's why it's so comforting to know that once per year, strangers run around soaking other strangers with water. So maybe someday when someone says Myanmar to me, I'll think of a water gun. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our television show, or order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimmel's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugertz. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.